Bookcraft is pleased to present the Sermon on the Mount, Part 1, by Dr. Truman G. Madsen. This recording, the first of two on this subject, is part of the series, Jesus of Nazareth. We turn now to the Sermon on the Mount, for which Latter-day Saints have three sources. The Gospel accounts, referring to the Sermon in Upper Galilee, the Book of Third Nephi, which has significant differences and was delivered to the multitude near the temple. And then we have the alterations made in the inspired version or the Joseph Smith translation of the Gospels themselves. We will work with all three as we proceed. But first a word about the location and setting. The mount described in the book of Matthew is never specifically named. All we have is an opening sentence that Jesus, uh, seeing a multitude, went up into a mountain, and his disciples came unto him. And when he was set, that's the Matthew, but the Joseph Smith translation adds down. When he was set down, he opened his mouth and taught them. This suggests that the them were not an entire or sizable multitude, but the disciples, and that he was sitting for his presentation. The place today that has been designated by tradition is north of the sea, and to arrive there you must zigzag on a highway which passes thorns and thistles and sunflowers and briars and noxious weeds and the entire sweep of the uh, uprising plain is covered with groves orchards and vineyards all of which bombard you with the sense of the agrarian life and of the importance of seeds and nurture and proper growth but also of the contrast between good fruit and mere thorns. That all provides background for references of Jesus here and in later parables. The other thing that strikes you as you are high is the magnificent view over the Sea of Galilee. And whether Jesus was in, in this exact vicinity or to the west near the horns of Hatim or what is known today as the Arabel or a place called Poria, which is the southern extremity of a kind of U-shape of mountains, or even in the east, now known as the Golan Heights. That same breathtaking view, with green and with the magnificent blue of the lake, is impressive. A word now for a moment on the contrast of location for the third Nephi account. Here, the more righteous portion of the Nephite civilization, in number we know exactly 2,500, both men, women, and children, were gathered after a solemn and shattering earthquake near the temple. And in their case, they heard first and did not understand, then again, and then third and did understand, a voice from on high. They were privileged both to see and then to feel 
the very body of the resurrected Christ to thrust their hands into his side and to hear his witness that he was the son of the God who had sent him and had been slain for the sins of the world. And all eventually knew of a surety that he was he of whom it was written by the prophets. Those who listened in the old world were not always sympathetic. In the new world, in this first experience, everyone present fell down at the feet of Jesus and worshipped and cried out with the rejoicing sound of Hosanna. It follows from this that he confided or taught some things in the Nephite setting that he did not in the Mount of the Beatitudes. Now, a word about the Beatitudes in sequence. They're often spoken of as blessednesses, and some translations begin each with the word fortunate rather than blessed. But we can tell from the context given us in Third Nephi that there are not eight, but actually ten Beatitudes, and further, that they are not independent virtues or instructions toward which one can of his own self aspire. They are, in fact, descriptions of the outcomes in the inner and outer life that follow from being fully planted, as it were, in Jesus Christ. To say it differently, it makes it clear in Third Nephi that one cannot have the fruits of the Christ-like life unless he has roots in the Christ. So the two additional and preparatory Beatitudes are as follows. Blessed are ye if ye shall give heed unto the words of these twelve whom I have chosen from among you to minister unto you and to be your servants. And unto them I have given power that they may baptize you with water and after that I will baptize you with fire and the Holy Ghost. Earlier he has said the Father will baptize you with fire and the Holy Ghost which illustrates what he later says, that he and the Father are now truly one. Therefore, blessed are ye if ye shall believe in me and be baptized, after that ye have seen me and know that I am. And again, and here's the second, more blessed, and the more blessed phrase does not occur in the New Testament, are they who shall believe in your words because that ye shall testify that ye have seen me and that ye know that I am. Yea, blessed are they who shall believe in your words and come down in the depths of humility and be baptized, for they shall be visited with fire and with the Holy Ghost and shall receive a remission of their sins. The more blessed I suggest is the recognition that he who is not compelled to be humble is more blessed than he who is, and that if one trusts the deliverances of the Spirit of the Lord within his own soul and 
the response that his spirit makes to truth when it is declared in power, he does not need to demand the experience of a direct face-to-face encounter, but is following the light and is led to receive the same blessings as if he were in the very presence of the Lord. Ultimately, of course, the greatest beatification of all is to return to his presence. Now, we know that those two prior beatitudes are connected to the others because of one word, the next. The word is yea. Yea, blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is no virtue in being poor in spirit, per se. There is virtue in recognizing that one is poverty-stricken in his soul and that he is in need and therefore comes unto Christ. That's the promise. But the phrase, who come unto me, is absent from the New Testament redaction. We know from modern revelation that if one would taste the pain of condemnation, if one would know what it is to taste of hell, then the withdrawal of the spirit is the clue. Uh, This ye have tasted, says the revelation, even in the least degree when I withdrew my spirit. Now the Beatitudes are pointing to the way to receive the spirit and the baptism of fire. And now again, blessed are all they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, in this context, there is no virtue in mourning alone. There is virtue in recognizing one's absence or loss or sins and then seeking remission. Such a one or such one shall be, as promised, comforted. And the next one, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness, sometimes defined in the scripture synonymously with humility, but it has more refined nuances. The promise of inheriting the earth is, in some versions, ye shall inherit the land, or you shall receive, ultimately, a consecrated portion of the land. But the earth itself is to become heaven. Meekness includes the willingness to submit to, to participate in, to be involved in all levels of society. And as is illustrated by the servants of the Lord, and especially by missionaries, one does not criticize or murmur if the food or the care seems to be at the level of a mere hovel instead of a palace. Meekness is willingness to serve and be served in the larger society, both in and out of the kingdom of God. Blessed, the next one, are all they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness. The New Testament simply says, for they shall be filled. But again, in keeping with these promises, they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. Hungering and thirsting 
are reflected in the life of Jesus himself, who was unhungered after his long fast, and then much later in his life said from the cross, I thirst. There is physical and spiritual hunger and thirst. And if one is hungrier for righteousness and for communion with God than he is for physical food, such an one will come to the food and the drink that bring the Spirit. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And the word mercy is often defined in the context of compassion, but this particular verse is cross-referenced to the prayer, now called the Lord's Prayer, where the plea is for forgiveness. More than that, the plea is a conditional one, which says, in effect, putting it negatively, do not forgive me one whit more than I am willing to forgive those who have trespassed against me. And the word trespass is uh, more or less synonymous with sin, but also with hostility. And enmity we often think of as uh, remote. In fact, we're taught over and over that enmity can arise in our hearts for those closest to us, for those we love. And this is a plea that if one has sought mercy through Jesus Christ, he must in consistency give mercy to all others. And later in the sermon, Jesus says categorically, if you will not forgive those who transgress against you, then the Father will not forgive you. One could say, well, that's rather arbitrary, isn't it? Surely, if we're asked to forgive all without conditions, the Lord should forgive all without conditions. But what that observation misses is that it is actually psychologically impossible for us, not just spiritually, but in our very minds, to accept that we are accepted as long as we refuse to be accepting and forgiving toward others, even our enemies. So it is not just the case that the Father will not and that the Master will not forgive the unforgiving, it is that they cannot so long as the root of bitterness remains within the soul. On the other hand, once one has tasted his own forgiveness and truly has manifest repentance of the grudge-keeping and the catalog-making and the bitter results, he yearns that others cross the same bridge and cries out on behalf of others for the forgiveness of the Lord. And that stops the vicious circle that otherwise is perpetuated in our lives. So blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And I reverse it, blessed are they who obtain mercy through Christ, for they will then be merciful to all others. It is a beautiful interrelationship. The next, and blessed are all 
This is the third Nephi version in heart. The word all is absent in the New Testament. For they shall see God. Purity in heart is again an impossible attainment if we attempt it on our own. The purification of the heart comes through the sanctifying influences of Christ. There is a legend that a little piglet amidst an entire herd of swine became the pet of a family and was brought in out of the mire, washed, cleansed, even clothed, and then the children as well as the parents uh, played with and involved this little animal in their lives. But as soon as their backs were turned, and regardless of how much trouble they had gone to cleanse the piglet, it was back outside and wallowing. Finally, after many failures, transferring the pig from one place to the other, a new idea entered their hearts. We will perform an operation. We will take the pig heart out and we will put a human heart in. That was done, and after that, the pig was not only content, but delighted to remain in the house and out of the mire. Unless the heart changes, the purity here defined is impossible. But the reward, again, is that once one is in the way of sanctification, he is more and more capacitated to endure the presence of God. Our book says that no unclean thing can dwell in the presence of God. It even implies that we would prefer, in a condition of impurity, to be with others likewise than to be in the presence of God. I would rather dwell, says a certain passage, with the damned souls in hell than be in the presence of God knowing my condition. Hence the saying of a modern prophet that we are our own tormentor and our own condemner. The next blessedness has to do with peace. Blessed are all the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Peacemaking, both in the external and internal sense, is the hardest task of life. It is clear, again, from Jesus' life and teaching that he is here speaking of the capacity of his disciples to love persons who actually hate each other and to get in the midst of such battles and conflicts and attempt to soothe and salve and reduce misunderstanding and to go on loving even when that which one seeks to love is unlovable is truly Christ-like. Everyone is able to get along with his friends. Do not even the scribes and Pharisees do the same, Jesus later says. And everyone is able to love and attempt at least peacemaking with those closest, those to whom he is in fact endeared. The challenge of discipleship is to extend love without stint. 
and to make peace where there is conflict and friction. Such are indeed the children of God. Such are indeed capable of returning to the presence of God in a perpetual condition of peace and love. And then, not a pleasant promise, blessed are all they who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. The New Testament version turns to a kind of commandment or imperative. It says rejoice and be exceeding glad. In Third Nephi, it becomes a promise suggesting that the full completion of this blessedness may take time and may be beyond our present understanding. For ye shall, says the promise, have great joy and be exceeding glad, for great shall be your reward in heaven. And then the line that's also in the King James, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Persecution or evil speaking against one, if it arises from the fact that he has taken upon him the name of Christ and is, in the language of some, involved in the Christian witness, I suggest no one finds that pleasant. It is grievous to be born. And the more sensitive one is to the Christ-like way of life, the more difficult are the patterns of violence and pressure. Nevertheless, Jesus is saying, ultimately, if one endures and overcomes, there shall be exceeding gladness in heaven. One can ask the question, did Jesus manifest these fruits from his roots which were in the Father? And the obvious answer is that in each instance, so he did. He himself came down in the depths of humility and submitted to baptism and was visited with fire and the Holy Ghost. He himself had times in his life when he was left unto himself, therefore was poor in spirit and cried out in great need sometimes incomprehensible need. He himself knew what it was to mourn, not for his own transgressions, but for those whom he selected and about whom he cared, which ultimately meant all mankind. So we have him saying on the American continent in a prayer, right after an outpouring of great blessedness on the multitude. Father, this in a kneeling prayer, I am troubled because of the wickedness of the house of Israel. And only a few verses later, he kneels again after blessing their little ones and says, Now behold, my joy is full. He knew, as very few men know in similar depth, the extremities both of mourning 
and of joy. Was he meek? He was meek. Described himself as meek and lowly of heart. Did he hunger and thirst after righteousness? He said to his disciples at Nobilis, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Was he merciful? We have seen repeatedly that he could not withhold himself because in the Book of Mormon way of expression his bowels were filled with compassion. The Hebrew word for the center self, for the very depths, for the locus of deepest feeling. Was he pure in heart to the point of communion with God and even the power to behold the Father? So he was. Was he a peacemaker? That was his entire life's mission. And finally, was he persecuted and reviled against and spoken evil against falsely? So he was. So when he says to the Nephites in three different contexts, what manner of men ought ye to be, and answers, even as I am, he is himself the fulfillment of the very promises and blessings that we have so far described. Now, the subsequent text also revolves around the emerging life and power of one who is renewed in Christ. So, for example, I say unto you, truly, I give unto you to be the salt of the earth. But if the salt shall lose its savor, wherewith shall the earth be salted? The salt shall be thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. The JST makes it clear that he considers himself likewise to be salt, and that the savor or savior, and this word play is in the Doctrine and Covenants, the savor is indeed life, even eternal life. There is only one way, apparently, for salt to lose savor, and that is by continual dilution. It does not lose its composition as a chemical compound, but it does slowly, if one continually dilutes it, become unsalting, that is, without savor. The whole point of salt is not to replace the taste of all other kinds of fruit or vegetables or meat. Salt enhances the taste of all other food. And likewise, the life that we are to live enhances or is supposed to all of that which goes in and all of that which contributes to the making of a mission or an act of service. Otherwise, It isn't just that we have lost something. The contrast here is that without that, without the savor, we are really nothing and good for nothing. 